Trust is something that's hard for us to learn how to do. And if, in one way, I can, I can almost imagine that trusting God is harder than actually trusting people. Even though people are known to not be very loyal, to backstab you, to fail you, to let you down, there's a sense so that when I trust a person, they aren't going to demand everything of me. But when I trust God, there's something in me that wants there to be another way. Because when I trust God, I now have to live with a certain level of uncertainty. And think about this. We don't want to trust him. We want to be certain about these set truths about him, don't we? We really want to be handed this really airtight theology. Download this into my heart, pastor. Great. We're good as long as we affirm this for the rest of our lives. We know that God is good. We know that God is this. We know we love certainty, be honest. But to truly trust God means, to a degree, you're letting that go. Yeah, we know there are some things that are true about him, but I have to simply rest in the fact that the almighty being has me. And I may not know what tomorrow holds. I may not know what this crisis is going to produce. I may not know whether God has preordained people to heaven or hell or not. Some people worry about those things. I may or may not know when the rapture's coming. And if you know, now you ruined it for all of us because Jesus said no one will know, so you ruined it. We, there's a lot of like uncertainties, right? And honestly, walking with God in trust is something we actually try to avoid. We want other people. Pastor, tell me what I'm supposed to do with this. I'm, I'm struggling with this person. Will you just make them nice? <laughs> We don't actually want to trust God, to step into the arena without a game plan and say, all right, whatever's going to happen, I know you've got me. We don't like that. We prefer, like my students right now at Lake Road Christian School, we're coming up on two weeks left of school, right? So finals are coming up. And, you know, there's this certain horror about finals and your last test because, you know it's big, and it's looming, and it's coming, and, and you're studying for it, and you're working on it, and the test comes, and you pass it, and yay, what's, what's on the other side of your test? No more tests. Summer vacation, and you get to put your feet up, and you're done. You're totally done. I fear that we treat God and our relationship with him like that. There's a moment when we have to choose, okay, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to put my faith in you, but we often treat that like the test, and then the rest of our Christian life is vacation. I already did that. I already told you I love you. I already told you I trust you. Okay? But although we want our faith to be a one-and-done kind of thing, the reality is that that's not trust and that's not faith. It's about a walk with him and learning to trust with every single step. And if we don't understand that, then we're going to make the error that Hezekiah, he's the king of Israel in our passage, he makes this error. He has a test coming right at him. It's a test that his father, King Ahaz, failed. In Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz was told to trust God. 
because he was worried. He was so worried because Syria and the, his northern brothers of Israel, the, the, the northern kingdom that was not Jerusalem, they've teamed up to come against him. And he wants to call on the Assyrians for help. And Isaiah says, dude, don't do that. Don't call on the Assyrians. God's plenty big enough to take care of your situation. Trust him. Ask God for a sign to prove he's there with you. And Ahaz, in his false piety, says, uh, no, I will not trouble God with a sign. I'll just call on the Assyrians. It's easier. Isn't it easier? Because you have the Assyrians on speed dial. But you cry and cry out to God and you don't, he, sometimes it doesn't seem like he's picking up the phone or he's not dropping you a memo or that email's left unreplied to. You see the uncertainty in trusting God? You know he's there and you know he's good because you just sang it two songs ago, but why doesn't he just like write with an airplane in the sky that it's all going to be okay? So that was Isaiah 7. Ahaz failed the test. He relied on the Assyrians. Well, guess what? His son Hezekiah is now this, the king of Israel. And guess who's now knocking on the door to destroy their city? The Assyrians his dad leaned upon. Oh, boy. So that's why Isaiah said, don't do it. Trust God. Well, now Hezekiah is in this situation. Now, he has the benefit, right? He has the benefit of knowing that my dad failed this test. And Isaiah's been railing for all the chapters we've been covering, chapters 13 through 35, 13 through 35 has been one long lesson of Isaiah saying, don't trust the nations, trust in Yahweh. Because look, he's got the certain destiny for all the nations. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got this apocalyptic end for everything. So then there's these two images you may recall last week. Two images to show you where your trust will lead you. Isaiah 34 had the whole world like a, a wasted landscape. It's a desert, and there's no people there. There's just hyenas and jackals and all kinds of desert animals. It's a wasteland. And Isaiah is saying, this is what becomes a you when you trust in humanity to be your deliverer. Do you have a political problem? We usually turn to politics to solve it, don't we? Do you have a money problem? What are you looking for? Money. Do you have a problem with people? Maybe a spouse? You're probably looking for a better spouse or a better person. Or you're just running away from people altogether. That's another option too. But how often do we fail to say, oh, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, there's one common denominator in all of it. It's that God needs to be part of the solution here. I need to lean on him and trust in him. But now Israel turns to humanity. They're going to be faded like the desert. The other option was Isaiah 35, where that desert begins to blossom and to bloom, and there's now rivers in the desert places. And instead of all these jackals and hyenas, there's there's humans, and there's a highway, and God's leading them on this highway, and everything's being restored. The lame are leaping like a deer, the blind see, the deaf hear. That's the destiny for those who trust in God. That's how we closed. Isaiah Chapters 13 through 35 were just this big, long lecture from Isaiah to the people saying, please trust God. Okay, so Ahaz 
failed the test. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to trust the Assyrians. Isaiah lectures, 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 end. And then we come to Hezekiah, and he gets to take a retest. Because this is great. God will give you a retest when we fail. Yeah, it's a pass or fail class, but it's not like, oh, you failed. Sorry, you're done. You can't, you can't graduate. God will always allow us to go through the lessons again and give us the test again so that we can pass it. And that is where Hezekiah is. He gets to give the people of Israel another chance to pass the test. Okay. So you ready? So here's what you need to know before we read the first verse. We're in 701 BC. 701 BC. That's 700 years before Jesus. Roughly. That also means roughly 20 years ago, their brothers, so Jerusalem is where Hezekiah is, and their brothers to the north, 10 of the 12 tribes up in the northern kingdom have been completely abolished. The Assyrian Empire has become the world power. And they have come down and they have taken the ten tribes and scattered them all over the world. And now guess where they've come? They've come right up to Jerusalem's doorstep. And now Israel has to choose, who are we going to trust? Are we going to lean upon the Egyptians to help us? Or are we going to actually trust in God this time? Well, let's find out what they do. Chapter 36, verse 1 In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that's our good guy, Hezekiah, our Jewish king in Jerusalem, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, that's your bad guy, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So all of the cities around Jerusalem are under siege or already destroyed. That means that Jerusalem now has a bunch of refugees swelling inside the city behind its walls. So you have an overpopulation, a shortage of food because the walls are drawn up and nobody's going out to farm anymore. You're living on what's in your pantry. It's a dire situation. You take a step outside, Assyrians are everywhere, behind every bush and every tree. And if you're a woman, God help you if you're outside the city because those dirty soldiers do anything they want. People are living in absolute fear, right? They're prisoners in their own homes. That's the situation that's going on here. Now, in verse 2, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. That's a title, by the way. It's the um, field general. He is, I was told by my commentaries, third in command in the Assyrian Empire. Third in command. Pretty high-ranking official. So the Rabshakeh from Lachish he came from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So Lachish is where they are right now, their headquarters. That's 30 miles about southwest of Jerusalem. So they're really, really close. So he comes up with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So, the officials of Assyria are sitting down at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. (laughs) They knew where that was. I don't have a clue what that means. And the officials of Jerusalem are meeting him there. 
It's a busy place, right? They're, they're, on, a, they're on a roadside. Now, we've seen this scene before. The conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. If you will, turn to chapter 7. Isaiah 7, that is, chapter 7. And look at verse 3. Isaiah 7, 3. Actually, let's just get the setting. Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz. So this is Hezekiah's dad. Okay, So we're about 35 years before what we're reading tonight. Chapter 7 is 35 years ago. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told... Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Just like our dear Hezekiah, they're in a bad spot. They're surrounded by enemies. Verse 3, And Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, the king, you and Shir Jashub, your son. Where? Where are they going to meet him? At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Oh. So we've had a meeting here before. And what was this meeting about? I already told you. Ahaz wants to trust in the Assyrians, dial them up and say, hey, come deliver us. And Isaiah is saying, oh, no, you don't. Just trust God. Okay. So now, Isaiah chapter 36, we're in the same spot 35 years later. Ahaz's son has the same test. There's a meeting at the same spot in this road. And now, there's going to be this conversation about trust. Except, last time, Isaiah was challenging the king and saying, you need to trust God. This time, it's an Assyrian official who's saying, don't trust God, just surrender to us. Different message. Also, ironic, isn't it, how God brings things like this? In that very spot where Ahaz was told, don't trust the Assyrians, now Hezekiah is talking to the Assyrians who have become not a help, but a threat. Man, this has come back to bite them, hasn't it? The irony of this same exact setting. Now, before we get to their discussion, I want you to see who Hezekiah is and what sort of a king and what sort of a person he is. So go ahead and turn, hold your spot here, and if you want, go to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18, you will see what kind of a king we have. 2 Kings 18 verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Now here we get our, our author's opinion about him. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah was a good king. 
He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Do you remember that bronze serpent? Back in Numbers, the people are complaining and complaining as they're in the wilderness and God's leading them to the promised land. And like, we're thirsty. It's hot. We've been here too long. The dirt looks the same every day. If we wanted to move to Arizona, we would have gone there. (laughs) They're complaining and... Sorry, babe. My wife's from Arizona. Um, (laughs) They're complaining and complaining about the Sedona Red, about everything, right? Manna every day. So God's like, okay, I'll give you something to complain about. (laughs) Something real. So he sends serpents. It starts biting them. And people start dying. And now they're like, ah, we're sorry. We don't mean to complain anymore. And so Moses was told to build a bronze serpent and put it up on a staff and show it to the people. And when they looked up at it, they would be healed and saved. Well, apparently, that bronze serpent was kept in the Tabernacle Museum And now Israel could go through and pay a fee. I'm making some of this up. Pay a fee and go look at it through its glass case and say, Oh, there it is. The bronze serpent. Ooh, heal me of my wounds. Hezekiah becomes king, walks in. He's like, what is this thing? So he gets rid of it because they turned it into a god. So... In verse 4 again, he removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, which means worthless. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses. And so Yahweh was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He's a good king. The northern kingdom had a total of zero kings. You could read that about zero. They were all bad. I have this Bible handbook. It was fun to, to read through them. They had it in double columns. Northern Kings. And he rated them from bad, very bad, the absolute worst, bad, 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 very bad. Like, it was just, it was kind of sad, but hilarious at the same time. You see all these bad kings. Then you saw Judah, the kings of Jerusalem, on this side. And you had a couple bad ones. Um, but out of all of them, there were eight good ones and two that said, very great. Hezekiah was one of them. Josiah was the other one. You guys remember Josiah from our study in Jeremiah. Um, Josiah was the guy who started a revival. Jeremiah was born in the middle of it, and Jeremiah became the prophet as Israel kind of lost the fervor of that revival. So Hezekiah, you can see, is a very, very good king. One more backstory on Hezekiah before we, uh, so we can appreciate the leader who's, tr- who's trying to help Israel trust God here. So go to 2 Chronicles, our last backstory. 2 Chronicles 32. Chapter 32. Second Chronicles chapter 32. In 32 verse 6 we read that Hezekiah set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying, 
Hezekiah is preaching to his people. Imagine that. The king actually preaching to the people. Trust God? Yeah, Hezekiah does that. It's sad to say that not many kings of Israel did that. But here Hezekiah does it. He gathers them and encourages them saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. Now he has to say this because as you look out at the Assyrians, this is the mightiest empire of the earth coming against a little tiny city called Jerusalem. (laughs) And you're like, we... We are like grasshoppers in their sight. You remember that one? They're like the sand of the sea, and we are just like a couple little pebbles. We have no chance. Yet Hezekiah has the audacity to say, there are more on our side than on their side. What's he referring to? We have God on our side. With him, verse 8, with him, the king of Assyria, is an arm of flesh, but with us is Yahweh our king to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. There you go. Back to Isaiah 36. Right man for the right time. Hezekiah is so ready to pass this test. We will trust Yahweh. By the way, those two passages I just had you go to are two other accounts of this same story. So by the time we hit Isaiah, you have the third time this story is told. What the Bible says it once, I like to pay attention. When it says it twice, I realize it's probably because I'm going to forget this, so really make sure this one stays in me. When it says it three times, nobody better get up and leave early tonight. (laughs) It's the third time the Bible's telling us this, okay? All right. No judgment if you leave. I'll just know where you're at. Just kidding. kidding. Verse 4. So, let's now see what this great Hezekiah, what they do with this Rashaka guy. Rabshaka. So, Isaiah 36, verse 4. So, the Rabshaka said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? And I want you to ask that question too. As we go throughout the story, On what do you rest your trust? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Imagine leaning on a reed and it breaks. The sharp, jagged edge is going straight up into your hand. That's the illustration. It's not a very pleasant experience. Behold, verse 6, you are trusting in, we just read that one, um, such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to who, to all who trust in him. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, Rabshakeh does not understand. 
Hezekiah destroyed all the altars, which he just alluded to, but he's thinking like their gods in Assyria, you worship your gods all over the place, there's altars everywhere. But Yahweh was very clear to Israel, you worship me only at this altar in the temple. Only one way to me. Um, so he seems to misunderstand. He, he takes Hezekiah as somehow betraying his God. But there's, this, is all, this is all psychological warfare here. You're going to see. Rabshakeh is trying to get them to doubt their king, doubt their God, and surrender to these Syrians. Take the easy road. So he continues in verse 8. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I could see his smile. He's really nice when you get to know him. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. So he's mocking them. He's looking at their, their puny little army saying, just to make things interesting, we'll give you 2,000 horses. Just to make the battle at least somewhat interesting. Oh, if you could even find 2,000 warriors to ride them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt, Egypt, for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now this guy has the audacity to say, your God, by the way, told me to destroy you, so are you going to serve him or not? Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Ravshaka in low tones, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. For they had noticed quite a crowd growing, hearing all of this mockery. <laughs> Please, not our language. But the Ravshaka said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall? After all, it is they who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. <laughs> this, uh, this applies to them too. So verse 13. Then the Rav Shekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Oh, you don't want me to address the people? Watch this. Grabs a microphone. <clears throat> Attention, everyone. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you shall drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. What a deal. You simply give all this up and come out to Assyria, we'll give you a house, a car, and, you know, spending money. You can have a year-long membership at the gym and, and, and the king's swimming pool. Like, you can just imagine, like, whatever it is that would allure to you. He's throwing these things out there. He's trying to get these people to surrender. And the people are listening, going, oh, sounds pretty good. Your government's giving me a better deal than I get, and I work really hard. 
I might do this. Verse 18, Rabshakeh continues, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? You can see him just like ticking off all the nations they have totally, utterly destroyed on their way to Jerusalem. And the people are like, oh, this is not looking good. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? What's your God? He's going to fall just like all the others. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shivna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Ravshaka. That is some guts right there. They hear all of this blasphemy and slander. They hear this impossible to pass up deal. They're completely humiliated before their own people because this guy is jawing off in the common language for everyone to hear what a fool their king is and they are for trying to stand up against him. And they don't say a word. Now, if only Adam and Eve had learned that lesson when the enemy talked to them. So we're doing pretty well here. And friends, this is good not to enter into dialogue with the enemy when he's trying to lure you into a so-called better deal. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It costs too much to trust God. If you just give in to the great power of the world, you'll get this and this and this and this. That does sound pretty easy. What we have here is a picture of spiritual warfare and how it works in the believer's life. Now, you can get crazy spiritual warfare and talk about like actual demonic activity and such like that, and, but that's not my point right now. The majority of spiritual warfare in our day-to-day lives is the enemy telling us not to trust God. Over and over, he's jawing like Rav Shaka. And it's best that you don't enter into deals with this. Just don't listen to it. But better, we're going to see one more example, and it's Jesus, when he's in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, um, he's in the wilderness and the devil comes and tests him three times. Jesus doesn't start to dialogue like, oh, tell me more about your deal, like Adam and Eve. He doesn't just ignore the devil like Hezekiah's men. He engages with the devil with scripture. And so when we are going through spiritual warfare and it's jawing and jawing and jawing and getting into our head and causing us to doubt and like, I don't, maybe God isn't going to help me here. Maybe the, maybe those self-help books were right. I just need more money. I don't know. Um, as minute that starts to happen, tell it off with scripture. That's what Jesus did. Be like, but, 
but I, what, what? For God to love the world, he gave his only God so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, everything's good now. No, it doesn't quite work like that. But it's about how scripture tells you who you are. I'm a beloved child of God. And I am a co-heir with Christ. And he has saved me. He has forgiven my sins. And he has raised me from my death. And he's, he's given me a purpose in his kingdom. Why do I need this bum deal? The king of Assyria? Or the king of whatever it is in your life? Like, like the king of kings is going to trump that one day. And I'm already on his side. That kind of scripture will help you through spiritual warfare. Or the kind of scripture that says, um, you know what? The God who parted the Red Sea, the God who's going to do what we're going to read about soon here and tonight, um, the God who died for me on the cross, I've seen what he has done, and he has been totally trustworthy. I've seen what he's done in my life. I know I can continue to trust him. That's how you're going to fight the spiritual warfare. But please don't say, tell me more about how pathetic we are. Sometimes we get stuck in that, and we can feel so beat up The devil would love nothing more for you to start looking in every place of the universe to be happier as long as it's not God. So they don't say a word. They come to Hezekiah, chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went out into the house of Yahweh. The king is humbling himself. People are going to see, oh, Hezekiah is not happy. What happened to our happy-go-lucky, courageous, be strong, and good courage leader? Hezekiah is being real and honest is what he's doing. And he sends his um, guys who talked with Rafshaka to Isaiah, who say, please, please, please pray on our behalf. In verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, the king, thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. How's that going to happen? This is where it's hard to trust God. It's not like God's giving you like this this forecast in the weather. Rain's going to come precisely at 2.30 today. You're going to get about half an inch. And then by 3 o'clock, the clouds are going to scatter and you're going to see some sunshine. It's going to be 72 degrees, but it's going to feel like 68 degrees. <laughs> That's not how God does He's like, oh yeah, no, no, don't worry about it. He'll, he'll be gone. He'll die in his own land. Like, when? Tomorrow? Tonight? A year from now? Do we have to suffer first? Tell me, please. Just, no, just trust me. I got it. So verse 8, the Rav Shaka returned. Oh boy. And found the king of Assyria fighting against... Libna, for he had heard that the king left Lachish. So he's back um, at his headquarters. And the king heard concerning Turka, the king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, okay, so now Rev Shaka's coming back because they really, really want Israel to surrender because they really don't want to have to fight. Most of the time, Assyria preferred you surrender. And if you didn't, they would beat you up and then they would skin you alive and leave your skulls at the front of the city so everybody would know what would happen if you don't surrender. The best way to conquer the world is have everyone just come bow at your feet, right? You don't have to lose any blood. So he's coming back to plead with them so that they surrender. So in verse 10, he comes back and he says, um, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. It's like he heard Isaiah's prophecy. 
Behold, you... Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? And the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Razaph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Who is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hena, the king of Iva? Just like pulls out the long list, right? A full on, like, you know, rolls down the aisle like, oh, we're just going to be another name on that list. That's what we want them to think. But chapter 14, uh, uh, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh. That's the temple. And he spread it before Yahweh. He takes this letter And he opens it up and he spreads it open right there in the temple in front of Yahweh and begins to pray. This is what we should do when we're in distress, when we are in doubt, when we are anxious, is to take everything that's boiling within us and to name it, to spread it out in front of him. Just put it all there. That is, by the way, what Paul told us to do in Philippians chapter 4. You know this one very well. In Philippians 4, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And then in verse 5, Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So when you're anxious, he's saying, don't. God's at hand. But but when you are anxious, because you're human and that happens, bring it to him in prayer. And he says, verse 7, the peace of God. You bring it to him in prayer. It says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It surpasses understanding and it guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Friends, did you notice that word guards? It's as if we are Jerusalem and we're surrounded by our anxieties, by our worries, by our doubts, by our trials, by everything that's going on, like these Syrians around us. We're surrounded. Yet his peace comes and it guards us. Hezekiah brings this before him. He roll, he, he smooths that. He spreads it before God. And he prays. You should know how this story ends now, shouldn't you? So he spreads it. In verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. 
So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Wow. So Isaiah is like, God heard your prayer. Here you go. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that Yahweh has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Well... Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I, what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown." I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That's God's word to the king of Assyria. Now the hook and the mouth or the nose and the pulled by the jaws back to your land. That's what the Assyrians did to their prisoners. That's how they lugged them on up. (laughs) You're going to be your own prisoner. (laughs) You're going to get what you're given to everyone. Now, Isaiah continues, talking to the king. This shall be a sign. This is verse 30. This shall be a sign for you. Remember how Ahaz rejected a sign? Well, this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So it's going to be hard for a while, but it's going to get fruitful. Verse 31. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with shield or cast up a siege mound against it. You will not see, in other words, a single piece of warfare coming toward the city. Just the people out there coming, but you're not going to see any. No arrows will be shot. No siege works will be built up. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. All right. So now the people of God are feeling pretty good. We still don't have a clue how God's going to do this. Defeat the greatest empire of the world without a single arrow being shot. Well, 
Israel's been here before, back to the Red Sea, the Egyptian army coming at them with all their horsemen and chariots. We already know about that, right? How many they have. Israel has a man crush on all their horses and chariots. They're coming after them. They don't have anything to fight against them with. They're slaves on the run with sticks and flat bread in their backpack because they didn't have time to bake it properly. And yet God parts the Red Sea. They get out. The Red Sea crashes down on the Egyptians. So, chapter 37, verse 36. Here's our parting of the Red Sea. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, stumbling for their coffee, whatnot, behold, these were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, I guess. If I woke up and 185,000 of my troops were suddenly dead, where was the fight? Where was the war? What happened? I would be a little spooked, too. Maybe their God can't be defeated and he just defeated us. Yeah, maybe. So he gets out of there. He returned home and lived at Nineveh. That's their capital. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, some people are that dense, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword in the act of worship. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharadon, his son, reigned in his place. And friends, from that moment on, the empire of the Assyrians begins to wane. Israel literally undermined the greatest empire of the earth of the time without firing an arrow, simply by trusting Yahweh to be their salvation. They didn't have to rely on the Egyptians. They didn't have to use worldly warfare means. They didn't have to use diplomacy, strike some bargain or deal. They simply trusted their God and prayed. And the Assyrian Empire crumbles. It's amazing. Okay. Here's where we unfortunately can't end right there. Because... Israel studied hard for this test. This was a big test, right? Your world's about to end. You bet you're studying for that. Do you remember when you were going to get your driver's license? How badly you didn't want to take that test more than once. Here's what we need to understand. If, trusting with, if, if walking with God is about trusting him day after day, all the time, not just, I trusted you once, I did an altar call, I'm good. No, it's about trusting him through life. It's about making it a habit of walking with him. If that's the case, you better expect there will be more opportunities to trust him. The problem is, is that every opportunity to trust him does not come announced as, your life is in peril, trust God. Actually, most of the time, spiritual warfare is not that obvious, and it's more like these seductive little things of like, aren't you a nice chap? You know, you would be the perfect person for my organization which rips people off. Smile, wink. It's more like flattery. It's more like, hey, this is a really good idea. Because as C.S. Lewis said, the greatest lie is the one that's mostly true. So watch this. Now, we're we're a little pressed, so um, I'll summarize chapter 38. And this is the one where Hezekiah 
um, he gets sick. And he's told, <laughs> Isaiah comes to visit him. He brings him flowers and a get well card. And he says, oh, by the way, God told me you're going to die. You're not recovering from this. So read my PS in the get well card. <laughs> Hezekiah turns toward the wall. You know the opening in your hospital gown. Exposed as Isaiah. He begins to whimper. I'm not ready to die. So God tells Isaiah, look, go back. Tell him he's going to live another 15 years. Suddenly Isaiah is like leaping in bed, right? So Isaiah gets another 15 years. Well, that is set up for this, chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. This was no minor comeback. The sundial went back like 10 degrees, it said, to show that Hezekiah be healed. Like, this is a big miracle. And it got all the way to Babylon. Now, Babylon isn't the Babylon you're thinking right now. They're an average-sized country. But they're growing. They're on the up and up, right? Their economy is surging. Their army is growing. Their technology is advancing. Assyria is crumbling, right? Their king's just been beheaded in worship. The Babylonians get word of it. And they're like, oh, Jerusalem. So they come down with an envoy. And Hezekiah is off guard. He's not thinking, oh, our, our kingdom's in danger. Trust Yahweh. He's just like, Flattered. Oh, the Babylonians want to talk to me? So verse 2, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And he just never seemed to notice that they were drooling at the mouth just coveting everything that was in this kingdom. So they go on, and Hezekiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah. He's skipping. He's looking really, you know, he's really happy today. Uh, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country. Perhaps you've heard of Babylon? Isaiah said, what have they seen in the house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. He's still beaming at it. He doesn't get it. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, They shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, he's probably not smiling quite as broadly at this moment. The word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good. (laughs) But inside he's dying, right? Cursed be my, (laughs) my fate and all that stuff. For he thought, but this is how he helped himself sleep at night. There will be peace and security in my days. And that's how Isaiah ends the first part of his book. 
We're going to go into the second movement of Isaiah next week in chapter 40. And suddenly the whole tone changes. The whole tone changes so much that it seems Isaiah is talking to a future Jews who will one day be in Babylon. And he's giving them comfort. So we're left with this cliffhanger, like, Babylon's coming. You turn to the next chapter, and they have come. At least there's a future of, he's prophesying, they have come, and this is the message for you guys. But here's what I want us to close with, to consider. We love to, we love, we're a one-and-done society, I think. You know, we love to say, nailed it, got my checklist done, we love to punch the box of finished. Um, and strangely enough, we do that with driver's licenses, right? You pass that test once and then you never have to take it again until you're like 92 or something. You know what I'm talking, you know that there are at least five people around you at all times that need to take that test again. Of course you're not one of them, but you know that's true. Um, God is going to always have in your life and my life opportunities to display our trust in him. It is to our benefit to recognize that it's not just the big test we have to pass. That there's always an opportunity to grow in reliance on Him. There's always an opportunity to grow in our relationship with Him, to go deeper. Friends, there's something... Trust is not just something we just do once and say, okay, conquered it. I'm a faith person. It's a lifestyle. It's a habit. We want to get to the place where trust in God is habitual. That when the Babylonian envoy comes and flatters us, we say, hmm, Lord, should I trust these people? The Proverbs sure say a lot about people who smile at your face and stab you in the back. Right? Getting in this place of not, oh, this is a big deal, let's pray. It's, hmm, it's 12 o'clock, let's pray. (laughs) Because who knows what's going to happen at 12 o'clock. It's about a habit. I actually read a poem just um, not too long ago this afternoon. And all I remember was this phrase that was that just got me. It said, um, you are shaping archetypes of praise in my spirit. You are shaping archetypes of praise in my spirit. Yeah, yeah poetry, right? Lofty words. The idea, though, is that there, my, my, my being is being shaped into praise itself. It's not something I'm just, oh, I should praise him now. It's praise is coming out of me because that's the archetype. That's my shape. That's the direction, that's the habit of my life. And you know, if we have to teach ourselves the habit of flossing every night, if we have to teach ourselves habits for mundane things like that, how much more should we teach ourselves habits for the soul, for something eternal? Especially something like trusting in God. When you and I would prefer, far prefer, the easier route of... (laughs) Did it. Done. Cruise control. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to cruise now. But friends, the warning here is that you can't just live like that if you and not expect your storehouses to be robbed by Babylon. Okay? We can pass the big tests, but life is not a one-and-done thing. There's pop quizzes. And the pop quiz is only passed when you've got the material inside you. So how's our trust in that spontaneous moment? How's our trust when we didn't know it was coming? Are we still trusting? Are we displaying trust? 
So I want to I want to close with the warning Paul gave us. I think this applies to Hezekiah. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. It's 1 Corinthians 10:12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Hezekiah sure thought he stood. Did you see how we got like through that whole Assyrian thing? We can handle anything now. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed or beware, lest he fall. Paul was warning the Corinthians, there comes a moment when you think you've got it down. You're walking good. You're bearing fruit. You loved your enemy. You sent a postcard to that person you can't stand. You're, all, you're just doing really well. Jesus must be so happy with you. It's at that moment that it's going to blindside you. It is at that moment the Babylonians are going to come and flatter you. They're going to just pile adoration upon you. And you and your little insecurity, because you forget who you are in Christ, you're going to be like, oh, really? You think that about me? And you're going to make friendships with the wrong people, or you're going to make the wrong alliances, or you're going to do things that the world's telling you to do, because you're like, oh, that's what I need to feel better? Oh, be careful, especially when things are going well. Paul to the Colossians said, chapter 1, he talked about how I am praying for you because everything's going so well for you. Those are the times we need to be most on guard. Hezekiah wasn't. So, are we going to be the kind of people that pass the test but fail the pop quizzes? Or are we just going to develop a lifestyle of trust so that we're ready at the drop of a hat? That's what we can learn from Hezekiah. We know that God's worth trusting. He does. He did for Israel. It was amazing. He will do these things in our lives too. But let's continue to trust in the little things. And I think that we'll see by just saying, okay, you get it your way, we'll actually start to look more like him. And last I checked, God moves the world pretty well. It's we who struggle. So only good things can come out of trusting in him. Let's pray.